Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. After these things, God rested, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham 
returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So this week's story is the climax of the life of Abraham, which we've been looking at this fall together. And it's also, in my opinion, one of the most poignant and beautiful stories in all of literature, period, not just in the scripture. It's a theological and aesthetic high point of the Abraham narrative without question, but it's also a confounding story. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard was a 19th century Danish philosopher who wrote a book called Fear and Trembling, which is a really hard book. I don't recommend reading it. Uh, but most of that book is a meditation on this story. And uh, Kierkegaard gets a lot of things wrong, but he does have a couple of fundamental insights into the narrative. Uh, one of the things that he meditates on at length in the book is the idea that true faith is trusting God for who he is, not just what he can do for you. At one point in the book, he writes, For he who loves God without faith reflects on himself, while the person who loves God in faith reflects on God. Now, undoubtedly, that is part of what God is teaching Abraham in this story. He wants to show Abraham what he is like. And therefore, he wants to see if Abraham will love him for him. And not just for the blessings that Abraham might receive from God. And so the question as we interact with this story that the Holy Spirit of God is impressing on each of our hearts is this. Do we love God for who he is or for what he does for us? Is God our chief end or is he a tool we use to get something or someone else? I think this morning that if we can understand and grasp the God of the gospel, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then we will truly, by faith, want him for who he is and not just for what he can give us. Because in this story, perhaps more than most in the scriptures, he shows us what he is really like. Now, if you've been walking with us through this story of Abraham, you'll know that a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 21, Isaac, Abraham's long-awaited son, is finally born to him. At this point in chapter 22, it's probably been about 10 to 15 years. So Isaac is either a preteen or an early teenage boy. He's around 12 to 15 years old. And he and Abraham clearly have a very close relationship. And remember that this is the son of the promise that we have been waiting for as we've walked with Abraham for 25 plus years at this point. God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah decades back that he would have a son even in his old age, even with a barren wife, and that through that son, his whole household will be blessed and in turn, his household will be a blessing to all of the nations, which makes... That whole background makes what God says to Abraham in chapter 22 so mystifying, so strange, so frustrating, perhaps. And so what is going on in this famous story of the sacrifice of Isaac? Let me try and summarize the main point like this. God tests Abraham because he wants to teach him the gospel. That's the idea. God tests Abraham here because he wants to teach him the gospel. Three points as we work our way through the text. A test is given. That's our first idea. First point. The second point is a journey is taken. And the third point is a substitute is provided. A test is given. A journey is taken. A substitute is provided. So let's walk through this together for a couple of minutes and then apply it. A test is given is what we see first there in verses 1 and 2. God comes to Abraham 
And he tells him to take Isaac to Mount Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Just out of the blue, God comes and says this to him. Now we know from verse 1 that God is testing Abraham, right? But Abraham does not know that. And so I want you to sit and stand and walk with Abraham. Imagine what it was like to have been Abraham. Get yourself into his story, into his heart and his mind. And I want you to see that God is fully aware of what he is asking of his friend Abraham here. I mean, look at how he repeats in verse 2. Take your son, your only son, your beloved son, whom you love, Isaac. God knows what he is asking. And in the original language, there's an idea here of God even saying, will you please take Isaac, your beloved son? It's very unusual for God to command someone to do something in this way. And the reason is this, God is asking Abraham to give up the son that he has been waiting for his entire life. Remember that Abraham has already given up Ishmael, his other son, through Hagar back in chapter 21. And now God is asking him to give up Isaac, his son, through Sarah, to part with his only child. This child in whom his hope and his joy very likely rests. But it's even more significant than that because God is asking Abraham to give up the son of the promise, you see. The son of God's promise. God has made Abraham a promise of a son. And of an entire nation through his son. God has established that promise by a covenant. We saw that in Genesis 15. He's reconfirmed that promise on many occasions throughout Abraham's life. The promise has been a guiding principle for Abraham and Sarah as long as they've been following God through all of their spiritual highs and lows. And now God is demanding Isaac's life as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering. Which, by the way, is the most basic form of offering in the Old Testament. It's an offering where the entire animal is offered up on the altar, symbolizing that all of our life belongs to God. Sacrifice your only son, the apple of your eye, the light of your life, the heir of the promise of my covenant. That is what God commands his servant and his friend Abraham to do. And so here's the question, why does God do this? I mean, that's sort of the question that drives the whole narrative. And it's one of the reasons why this story is so brilliant. Through the telling of the story, we're forced to ask ourselves this question again and again, with great drama, I might add. So why? What is God doing here? How can God make such a request? Is this not, other than being morally morally repugnant, is this not a renunciation of who God is and of what God has said? Why is God doing this? Let me say two things here initially, okay? First, God does this because he wants to see if Abraham will love him and trust him and follow him for who he is or for what he can get from God. God wants to see if Abraham will commit to him totally and without reservation. God is testing Abraham to see who the true Lord of Abraham's heart really is. We know this because in verse 12, God says to Abraham, Now I know that you fear God, as in you've passed the test, because you've not withheld your son from me. So the question being asked of Abraham in a really, really, really painful and difficult way is, Abraham, are you following God because you love Isaac? Or are you following God because you love God? God wants to know. 
And shouldn't we ask this of ourselves as we go through this story and think about it? Do you love God for the benefits of loving God? Or do you love God because of the beauty of God? If God stripped you bare and took away everything so that all you have left is him, can you say, like Job does, blessed be the name of the Lord, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Listen, it is easy, relatively, to love God when he gives us blessings. Part of the story here is that that is not faith. Faith is loving and trusting God because we see him and love him for himself. We see him as the great good That's one thing God is doing. But secondly, God wants to show Abraham, and I want you to listen. God wants to show Abraham what it will cost him to keep his covenant promises. What do I mean? Well, listen, part of the promise that God made to Abraham is that he will be justified or made right with God. We saw that in chapter 15, verse 6. God promised that he will forgive Abraham for his rebellion and sin, for his failures and shortcomings. Remember in Genesis 15, God walks through the the animals by himself, right? You remember that a couple of weeks ago if you were with us? God has promised Abraham communion with himself. He's promised him reconciliation. He's promised him blessing. And here's the idea. All of that costs something. Here's what God wants Abraham to see in this test with Isaac. Someone is going to have to experience pain and loss if there is going to be redemption. Someone will have to pay for the offense if forgiveness is to be really granted. The world is so broken, God is saying, that to repair it costs us something. Costs someone something. You know... I think we can understand this on a practical level if we think about it together for a second. Um, All forgiveness costs the one who extends forgiveness something. Let me give you an illustration that I hope will be, well, I'm sure will be relevant to most of us. Say your spouse says something that is extremely hurtful to you, that just cuts you deep like a knife. It's painful. It's hard for you to hear. It wounds you deeply. And, And you're just so undone about it. And sometime later, it might be a few hours, it might be a few weeks, who knows, your spouse comes and says, I know that what I said was hurtful. It was wrong. Please forgive me. I apologize. I'm sorry. Now, in that moment, the one who has been offended has two options. Okay? The one who has been offended can either, you know, say externally, yeah, sure, I forgive you, or whatever, no problem, but hold a grudge. And really lord that sin over the other person like a, like a sledgehammer ready to drop at any given moment. And he or she can carry around bitterness and pain and not really extend forgiveness. That's one option. Or that person can, in a sense, swallow the pain and the hurt that that word cost them. In a sense, they can embrace the pain and extend forgiveness. Here's the point. The forgiveness is free and unconditional to the spouse who said the terrible thing, but it is costly to you if you're the one forgiving. Now, you have to hear the you have to bear the pain to forgive. That's the idea. Tim Keller in one of his books called The Prodigal God writes this. Mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, then it isn't mercy. But, listen, forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting the forgiveness. Here's what's going on here. God is saying, 
Abraham, do you understand what it costs to forgive your rebellion against me? That's what God wants Abraham to viscerally, experientially grasp. If God is going to forgive, God has to bear the cost of forgiveness himself. So if nothing else, see what our rebellion against our maker costs God if he's going to forgive us. That is the reason for this test by God of Abraham. A test is given, okay? Secondly, we see that a journey is taken. In verse 3, Abraham responds by doing what God tells him to. And notice there in verse 3 we read that Abraham rose early in the morning. No questions asked, asked, he obeys. Now this is different from the Abraham we've seen in the past, right? Where God tells him to do something and he questions God. Well, God, how am I supposed to know where you're going to take me? This is different from what we saw with Abraham's nephew, Lot, correct? When the angel said, get out of Sodom. And Lot said, well, hold on. I really like Sodom. Can I go to one of the suburbs of Sodom instead of out to those hills? You know, the lifestyle I'm accustomed to isn't going to really be suitable for the hills. That's not what Abraham does here. There's no backtalk. There's immediate obedience, which signifies, among other things, Abraham's growth. Faith, we see here, is trusting in God and then acting upon that trust. So let's walk with Abraham here. He saddles the donkey, he takes two servants, and he takes this three-day journey. Think about that. Will you just live in that? This had to have been the most difficult three days of Abraham's life. I mean, notice that the author draws out the drama to the fullest with these painstaking details. Normally, Genesis is very much of a survey. I mean, it will cover decades in half of a verse. But here, Moses, the author, slows down. And he gives us some details, like the order in which Abraham packed. I mean, who needs to know that? The purpose is so that we will be able to experience what Abraham must have been feeling. Can you imagine the internal dialogue going on with Abraham here. And the extended trip draws out the haunting pain and the internal struggle that he must have been feeling. It goes in slow motion. And it's especially brought out there in verse 7 when Isaac asks his dad, Father, here am I, son. I see the fire, I see the wood. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? I, I don't understand, dad. And then you can just imagine after Abraham's answer, silence as they ascend the mountain. One commentator says this is the most poignant and eloquent silence in all of scripture. You know, the pathos of this scene, I think, is remarkable. So imagine with me, imagine the thoughts going on in Abraham's inner life. Slow down for a second. I mean, fundamentally, it would have been a battle internally between conflicting ideas. Here's what Abraham's thinking. Is God a liar? Is God good? How could God ask this of me? On Isaac, all of his promises rest. Why would he demand this of me? He is not fair. He is not for me. He's turned on me in the last possible moment. On the other hand, he's also probably saying to himself, God has always proven himself trustworthy. He's covenanted himself to me. I've seen it in the visions that he's given me by night. He's sworn by his own life to fulfill these promises. Sarah, my old barren wife, had a baby for crying out loud. Surely he's going to be faithful to his promises. For three days, 
Have you ever wondered why doesn't God just say, take Abraham out or take Isaac out back and sacrifice him now? Why does he make him journey all the way up to the top of a mountain three days away? Well, part of the reason is because it's a test. He wants Abraham to have these sorts of questions with himself. It had to have been the longest, what is it, 72 hours that Abraham had ever experienced. And the question is, can Abraham trust God when it makes absolutely no sense and contradicts everything he knows? It contradicts everything he's ever been told by God. Well, Abraham amazingly does trust God. And along the way of this three-day journey, he seems to figure it out internally as he's wrestling with himself. What do I mean? Well, we see hints that his inner battle is resolved and that he moves forward in trust. We see hints that Abraham believes that God is going to keep his promises even if Abraham can't see how. Where do we see those hints? Well, look in verse 5. When they begin to go up the mountain, they leave the two servants beside. And Abraham says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, we're going to go over there and worship. Interesting choice of words, by the way. And come again. That is, we will come again to you. That's a first person plural verb. So Abraham there seems to be implying that he thinks Isaac somehow is going to come back. And then notice again, the answer Abraham gives to Isaac's just penetrating question in verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Those seem to be hints that Abraham, as he's wrestled with this on the trip, has figured out that somehow God is going to bring Isaac back. And actually, we know for certain that Abraham figures it out because the New Testament gives us commentary on this chapter, especially in Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 17 through 19, listen to this. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. By faith, Abraham... When he was tested, referring to this story, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now listen, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Along the way of Abraham's journey with his son, Abraham exercised faith. He rested in God's promise, even when it made no sense. And listen, that is what it means to follow God. Can you trust God like that? Even marginally? Do you believe his promises to you when it makes no sense? Do you believe God's promises when you are in agony? Listen, this is a test that we will all experience. Perhaps never as significantly as Abraham did, but we all must learn, if we're going to understand what it means to follow Jesus, that trusting God, real faith, rests in God when we are in the darkness as well as when we are in the sunlight. When you face unexpected sickness in your life, can you trust that God is still with you? When you face crumbling relationships that leave you heartbroken, can you trust that God has not forgotten his promises? When you face the incredible grief of the loss of a child, whether it's within the womb or outside of it, can you trust that God is right there with you and still completely reliable? When you face death, when you face the end of this world, can you trust 
that Jesus Christ has mastered and defeated that last enemy and that you will wake to see his face. Faith is trusting in God and acting on it when life is crashing down around you. At the end of The Lord of the Rings, yeah, I'm going there. In The Return of the King, um, Pippin, one of the hobbits, sits at the very top of the city of Gondor with Gandalf the wizard as he watches the invaders come from all sides, as he watches firebombs take down the walls, as he watches the orcs penetrate into the city and begin to destroy people and things. And he's heartbroken. He's devastated. The world is coming down around this hobbit who has grown so much in his journeys. Thankfully, he has the wise wizard standing next to him. And he looks at Gandalf and says, I didn't think it would end this way, Gandalf. And Gandalf says in return, end? No, Pippin, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we must all take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass and then you see it. See what, Pippin says. Gandalf, see what? And Gandalf responds, white shores. And beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. And Pippin responds, well, that isn't too bad. To which Gandalf says, no, no, it isn't. Can you trust God when the world is crumbling? It's the test that Abraham is being asked to journey in. And it's the test that by God's grace, he passes. We see a journey is taken. And then finally, a substitute is provided. Abraham and Isaac travel up Mount Moriah to make the sacrifice. By the way, it's almost certain that Isaac knows what is going on here. He's a teenage boy and his dad is in his 90s. It's very unlikely that his dad is going to be able to forcibly bind him and put him on an altar to sacrifice him. So it's almost certain that Isaac, as well as his father, is exercising faith and willingly submitting to this, which is amazing in itself, by the way. And um, so he ties Isaac up. And just imagine the pain of that as a father. He binds his son's hands and feet and lays him on the wood. And interestingly enough, it's Isaac that's carrying the wood up the mountain, symbolizing what's about to happen. He has the knife in his hand and he raises the knife. And just as he's about to slit his son's throat, God calls out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, and stops him. And as we saw a moment ago, then God credits Abraham, verse 12, for his trust and faith. And he reconfirms the promises that he has made to him in verses 16 through 19. And then finally, and maybe most importantly, in verse 13, God provides a substitute offering. And we read there that Abraham offered the ram up as a burnt offering instead of his son. What a remarkable story. What a remarkable resolution. But, you know, what is the point? Why did God have Abraham go through all that? Why is this in the Bible? Here's why. God is teaching Abraham the heart of the gospel. And therefore, God is teaching Abraham the heart of who he truly is. God is saying, Abraham, for me to keep my promise to save you and save the world through your family, a son must die. But it won't be your son, Abraham. In fact, it can't be your son. 
Isaac's death, or for that matter, matter, any other human's death can only atone for their own sin. The Bible says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. But no human can atone for the sins of others. So God says, no, Abraham, to keep my promises to you and to the world, the sacrifice, the one who's going to bear the cost of forgiveness has to be my son. I have to offer my son as a substitute so that I can make you clean and righteous. Later on in the Bible, I love this, in John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus of Nazareth is speaking and arguing with the Pharisees. And Jesus says in John eight fifty six that Abraham saw my day and was glad. Now, what is Jesus referring to there? He's referring to this exact story. In fact, he's referring, I think, to this exact moment. God told him to sacrifice Isaac and do all that he did so that God could reveal to Abraham what he was going to do and what he is like. God teaches Abraham the gospel here, which is why Jesus can say, Abraham saw my day and was glad. He rejoiced in it. God is not just testing Abraham's faith here, you see. He is informing Abraham's faith. He shows Abraham Jesus and Jesus' sacrifice. He tells Abraham what it's going to cost God to bless and renew the world through Abraham. You know, you could say it like this. God spared Abraham's son Isaac, but God did not spare his own son. In fact, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in that great verse, Romans 8.32, that God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. And if he's given up Jesus, how will he not also along with him graciously give to us all things? Abraham, God is saying, Jesus, my son, must come. And Jesus, my son, must die. And Jesus, my son, must be raised again like Isaac was symbolically raised again. If God is ever going to do what he has promised, God has to bear the cost of forgiveness. No one else can do it. God has to pay the price of redemption. And what Abraham saw that caused him to rejoice is that God is willing to do it. That is why Abraham calls the place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. You know, Isaac's question there is so poignant. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? That is why Genesis 22 is in the Bible, to show you where the lamb is, to show you who the lamb is, to show Abraham, to show Isaac, to show countless generations of the faithful after them that the lamb has been provided as John the Baptist, baptizing for a repentance of sins in the Jordan River, thousands of years later would look up and see Jesus and say, behold, John one twenty nine, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who is sacrificed. Jesus is the answer to Isaac's question. John, 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, let's wrap up. God takes Abraham 
And really, he takes us, as we resonate with Abraham, through this test to show Abraham that God is worthy of our deepest love and loyalty because of who he is. He is the God who is willing to give his own son for rebels to live. Jesus is the point of the story. Jesus is the point of the Bible. Jesus is the greater Isaac who willingly offered himself as an atoning sacrifice to pay what it takes for us to be ransomed. Jesus is the greater Abraham, who trusts God, even when it terrifies him. As he's sweating drops of blood in the garden, he says, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Jesus is the greater offering, who was offered up by God for our forgiveness, to be assured. Can you see Jesus? Can you see his glory? And his grace here in this story is the gospel not vivid. How can we not trust fully a God who is like this? Anne Voskamp, in her book, uh, 1,000 Gifts, writes this. God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned... Hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. Let's pray.